0: Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Life After Business podcast. This is Ryan Tansom here. Stever Robbins is on the show today, and it was an absolute blast. Stever has one of the most top-downloaded business podcasts on iTunes called Get It Done Guy, and he's also a thought leader in the business community. He co-wrote a couple musicals. He's an author of two books, one called It Takes a Lot More Than Attitude to Lead a Stellar Organization and Get It Done Guy's Nine Steps to Work Less and Do More. He's a serial entrepreneur. He was part of the original startup FTP software, has been an investor in many businesses, and he has an absolute amazing way of looking at the world that we live in, in the business community, what does it mean to live an extraordinary life. He's got four myths we talk about that he debunks of what it means to actually live a successful life, and he gives us some serious action items about how we can figure out what we want to do with our life, and describing to us how it's about the journey and not about the goals, and the journey will get you to where you wanna go. Today's episode is brought to you by The Value Advantage, which is a digital online course curriculum that is the ultimate guide to value building and exit planning for the entrepreneur. I've taken all the information that I wish I woulda had before we sold, all the best advice from all the people that we interview, the best tools and resources like value building tools, business valuations, net proceed calculators, education on how to build a team, all the different exit options, and we've packed them together in this online course. If you're interested, check out the website. Absolutely had a blast talking to Stever. Without further ado, here's Stever Robbins. Stever, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm super excited. I love all of your work and your messaging that you've got out there. And you've been uh, exposing your theories to the world for quite a while now. And I want to, for our listeners' sake, if you can kind of dive right into explaining your four myths and what it means to be the extraordinary life. Absolutely. Uh,
1: So to begin with, I have what what on paper appears to be a pretty pedestrian and mainstream background went to MIT and Harvard Business School Worked as a manager in high tech, later became a consultant, and then for did a few startups here and there. And uh, since then, have er, for about the last 17, 18 years, have been an executive coach, where I primarily work with executives and folks. Sometimes around business skills. In fact, I'm almost always hired for business school skills, and somehow it almost always ends up being about life and purpose and interpersonal things and leadership abilities and everything. All, all of the things that people consider the soft stuff until they're suddenly in the middle of it, and they need the hard stuff, and they discover that it's hard stuff. One of the things that I have discovered over the years, and we can talk more about my living an extraordinary life experiment uh, later if you're interested, but I started noticing that there was a lot of conventional wisdom that just didn't match my experience stuff that people would say, and we would all nod our heads and go, oh, yes, that makes sense. And then when I really stopped to think about it, I realized actually it doesn't make sense. So uh, there are four major myths that I talk about. There's probably actually a few more than that, but those are the four biggies. Uh, The myth of hard work, the myth of planning, the myth of goals, and the myth of marshmallows, which is deferred gratification. And these are – all four of these are strategies that work in some places and usually on a micro scale. And they work so well in some places and on a micro scale that we believe that we should apply them to our entire lives. And we end up doing things like saying to young people, well, you know, work hard and you'll get ahead. And I'll tell you something. I can provide so many counterexamples to that in both directions of people who have worked hard and not gotten ahead and of people who have gotten ahead and not worked hard. Uh, that I'm not even convinced that it's more than a very very loose correlation. And then one day I realized that I should ask people, what does that sentence even mean? In a world where today almost every job consists of st- sitting catatonic in front of a screen twitching our fingers <laughs> on top of a keyboard, what the heck does hard work even mean? And I and the nice thing is I would give present I'd give a lot of public speaking and presentations, so I would just ask the audience. And By far, the most common answers are, by definition, hard work is work that I spend more time on than I want to spend, that is difficult for me to do, and that is unpleasant. And that's how people actually define hard work. (laughs) So when we say to a young person, work hard and we'll get ahead, what we're saying is find something you're not good at, that you hate (laughs) doing, and work really long hours, and that's the path to success. And I just reject that. Frankly, I, I think that, in fact, they, you know, the research that I'm aware of on productivity backs me up. If you give someone a job that they're good at, that they enjoy doing, it's not work. And, right? It's not work. They don't think of it as hard work, and and they do it, and they generally do a way better job than if they're doing all that stuff that that they are not good at and it takes a long time and it is unpleasant for them.
0: Well, and then you got these other three that I and, and I think all four of these myths that you've got and are are extremely correlated to the building of a business and being a business owner and with our listeners they've done a lot of these things to create this valuable business with a culture and people but I mean they they had goals and they had planning and they had deferred gratification as they're plowing their profits or plowing their the the risks that they're taking from sacrificing your family and all or you know, time with family all into this building this this business. So explain where you came from these four myths and like what you ended up doing to realize that they were myths.
1: Well, okay. Well, so to begin with, like I said, there are places where they work. And, and the places I started realizing they were myths uh, was when I talked to people who were later, in, mid and later in their careers. As I said, I work as an executive coach. So I would sometimes sit down with people who had say run, uh, there was one gentleman who had run a 60,000 person company and we were talking he was getting ready to retire and we were discussing what he would do next and how he'd spend his time and you know he had no hobbies he had no outside interests and so i asked him what did you enjoy about the business itself you know you you did this for 40 years you ran this gigantic corporation for the last 10 of them you know what was it that you really enjoyed and he looked at me with this this very odd expression and said I don't know that I understand the question, (laughs) and I said, "Well, you know, you must have walked in and felt something, you know, positive that got you coming back the next day." And he said, "Actually, no, I just kind of went in because it was what I was supposed to do." He had never,
0: at no point,
1: had he stopped to say, "Why am I doing this?" And that's Uh, interesting. You know, one of the other really interesting ones that I um, uh, that I encountered was a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who had retired. And he was from a particular industry that, that um, uh, boy, I don't want to give, I, I can't give any identifying information, obviously. So he was from a particular industry that is well represented among the Fortune 50. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. And he had climbed his way to the top of this company because he had a particular agenda and wanted to steer the company and the industry in a particular direction. And once he got to that position, as many CEOs discover, he in fact did not have absolute freedom to do anything he wanted. He was the CEO of a public company. If he had done anything to try to steer this ship in a different direction that even momentarily increased the ever or that even momentarily disturbed the ever increasing profits, he would be canned and they'd bring someone else in. (laughs) So he got all the way to the top after forty years only to discover that his hands were tied and he couldn't do any of the stuff he wanted to do. So he was really, really unhappy about this situation and he basically served out his term, retired and went to, you know, went to live on a tropical island somewhere. And we were talking about it and in our conversation it came out that he didn't like the industry. He didn't like the people in the industry. He didn't like the things he had to do to get to become CEO and he didn't like being CEO. So there was nothing at all intrinsically satisfying about the 40 years worth of work that he did, except you know finally he had a mansion on a tropical island. And I'll tell you something, when he told me that story, I'm like, okay, great, now you feel good. But it kind of seems like a waste of 40 years of life to surround yourself with people you don't want to be around, talking about things you don't want to talk about, and, have, and do all of this for the promise that someday you will have this reward. The reward in this case would have been making a particular cha- impact on the world. And once you get there, it turns out that, you, that being there it doesn't even give you the ability to have that reward. And that was where I started to really, that was one of the places that I started to explore the notion of planning a life and, and setting life goals. Uh, I also, as a graduate of Harvard Business School, um, I would come back a day a month and do what was essentially volunteer career coaching for current students. And with this, with the CEO, I had the experience of looking back on a career with the students I had the experience of looking forward on a career Mm. and students would come in and I would say tell me what you want for your future and they would describe they would describe these goals they had and these paths to get there and it was pretty clear that they knew nothing about the way the world worked because the paths that they described to reach the goals they thought they wanted were not paths that would get them there they were paths that maybe no one in history had ever actually successfully done so somebody might want to be an entrepreneur, and they would be like, well, first, I'm going to go into investment banking for 900 years so that I can get finance <laughs> contacts. Then I'm going to be a management consultant so that I can get a good overview of many different industries. Then I think I'm going to go into broadcasting for a while so I can figure out how to get my message out. And then when I'm 97 and three quarters, I'll start a company. And I'm like, doing what? <laughs> you you have yet to identify a product, service, or need anywhere in your 60-year plan here. Um." Uh, So A, they would choose plans that wouldn't necessarily get them where they wanted to go. Uh, B, and this is such an important point, is that you don't know where you're going to want to go because life happens. And the things that are really attractive to you at the age of 25 that inspire you to create your 40-year plan may not be particularly attractive at the age of 65. And we are really, really bad at projecting our needs And there's actually a bunch of research about this. We're very bad at projecting our needs and wants far out into the future. Well, it's it's,
0: it's interesting because you say, like, um, in one of your videos, is I I love the story of the goals and how the second myth of you know we all want goals, we need goals, but then you talked about you know climbing to the Everest, the the top of Mount Everest, and what does everybody talk about? They don't talk about the three seconds at Everest. They talk about the journey, right? And so we got these business owners, and, and I've experienced it myself, and even that CEO where there's this pursuit of you trying to become a better person and, and tackling problems, but then you don't really know what's after that peak. And it kind of dovetails into your third myth of the planning, which is what you were just alluding to, where the definition of planning is knowing where, and I, you, you could elaborate on this because I'm probably not saying it correctly, but plan, we've got this d- uh, illusion that we're, we can actually plan our life because of these different Tangible things, even though that's not really the case. Can you? Because I think the business owners that we work with and, and I talk to, they get to this point where they've kind of got to the peak of Everest, or they've got to the revenue amount, or the, they've done something in the industry, and they just have zero idea what's on the other side of the mountain.
1: Yeah. Well, it, and it's or even or even that they should have paid any attention to which mountain they were going up. <laughs> they, no, <laughs> you that's know, that's a very good point. It's I. I still. um uh, I have a friend who has founded several successful companies at least 4 he's on his 5th one right now and 3 of the 4 he has sold for nine figures in cash wow so we're talking about a man who has walked off from three different sales with over 100 million dollars each time wow. and 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 the other one was the the, the other one wasn't nine figures the uh, the other one was uh, 1234568 figures so he he has not done poorly let's just put it that way and I remember him talking once. He was like, Yeah, he's like, I remember when my net worth went over $100 million. I was expecting to feel something, and it was just kind of like, Oh, look, my net worth went over $100 million. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? and, no. and I'm like, Yeah, right, it's, it's a number. And you'll get excited about it for a few minutes, maybe, and then you'll be like, Okay, and I'm still sitting in the same place I was before. And there's really, I mean, take it from me. I've done the experiments to find out. There's a limit to how many gummy bears one human being can eat. So $100 million clearly isn't going to, you know, is, is clear, clearly is more than enough to buy all the gummy bears you could want. And other than that, I just don't know what you would spend the money on. Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, so it, in that, that's funny. I'm just thinking food, so I'm thinking of your fourth myth of the marsh- marshmallows, which is deferred gratification. I think a lot of entrepreneurs w- defer a lot of a lot of time, a lot of sacrifices to to building this business, whether they know it's the right mountain or not, and whether they've got the right goal and plan or plan in place. So, I think that can you explain how you essentially recalibrated your own life? Because I think that's the biggest thing that all of my listeners and the people I interact with is like, okay, so I, I kind of get this now, but like, what do I do if I realize I'm halfway up the wrong mountain or if I don't know what my correct goals are? And, like, what do you do about it?
1: <laughs> well, I wish that I had the ultimate answer um, because it, it seems like every time I think I have an answer, you know, the universe hits me with a situation that I hadn't anticipated. And it was like, <laughs> wow, my answer doesn't cover that case. Um, I'll tell you how I currently think about, about stuff. So, first of all, there is absolutely, there is absolutely no doubt that having money is better than not having money in terms of material comfort and certain forms of security. So you need to figure out what those numbers are for you. Not the numbers you want to have, but the numbers that if you had this much, you could you could have a an acceptable standard of living, your food would be taken care of, et cetera, et cetera. And understand that once you push past that amount, any increment above that is in some sense optional relative to the goal of of providing for yourself and your family. So that's one mistake a lot of people don't make is is they get into this mindset of I have to provide for myself and my family, but then they keep that mindset even when they're well past that. I it, The woman who was my mentor when I was a teenager was a friend of mine's mother, and she was investing in real estate in Southern California in the 1970s and doing very well. She made, she made several million dollars. Uh, fast forward 40 years, and I was visiting her as she was preparing to sell off all of her real estate and just travel around the world. And now we're talking about at this point, this woman had, you know, again, like nine figures worth of real estate. She she was very, very successful. And she was telling me, she said, you know, I just have one more thing to do before I'm really ready to like take off and go traveling around the country. And I was like, what's that? And she owns, she lives in a very desirable beach area in San Diego and Quietly, piece by piece, she had bought up every parcel of land on the block where she lived. Hmm. And she said, you know, all I have to do now is, is just um, uh, demolish this block and build a condominium complex, and then I'll be done. It's <laughs> a small project. And, and, and I said, well, well, for her, I guess it was. <laughs> and, and I said, well, why do you have to do that? And she said, well, I have to provide for my kids. Now, she had just liquidated $100 million worth of real estate. You know, like, like, I'm looking at this going, okay, so 40 years ago, she got into a mindset that said, I have to do real estate to provide for my kids. She was in a situation where she had enough money in cash from selling these buildings to be able to provide for her kids for about a 100 lifetimes. <laughs> and, and the rule that was still active in her brain was, I have to do real estate to provide for my kids. Despite the fact that you know she doesn't, I, and and actually I haven't spoken with her in several years. She may no longer be with us, but but even if she is, it's not like you know she was at an age where she didn't have like you know fifty years left. She was when I last visited her. I suspect she was in her seventies or eighties. Yeah, probably probably late seventies. Um, so you know, like like at some point you need to decide enough is enough. But then you have to decide what to do next. And this is the this is the the so. So first of all, uh, and this is all around the myth of deferred gratification Mm -hmm. and and scaling your mountain, right? So A, you need to actually understand what's the real peak you're going for. And for most people, the real peak that matters in terms of security, if that's what you believe you're going for, is much, much lower than a lot of people think. You know, I Mm -hmm. mean, and you can sit down with a financial planner and you can figure it out. It's a hard, you know, it it is a specific number and you may already have that much saved up. So number one, you need to really realize that. You know, number two, you also need to really realize that, no, you can't take it with you. So there is, I think, some serious wisdom to the notion of he who dies having used up the most toys wins. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it it uh, I now I don't know if this is true, but someone said there was an interview with Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, Mm -hmm. where Munger has has now said that he wished he had spent more time with his family and stuff and more time with his relationships and, you know, kind of less time doing the whatever he was doing i I mean the man's been a billionaire for the last 35 40 years can't buy time right at no point in at no point since like 1975 has he needed to work and i mean for anything like he could have had mansion upon mansion upon mansion which he doesn't really want anyway and he still would not have needed to work so you have to look at this and go what the heck you know what what and and what it was was he never actually stopped and thought why the heck am i doing this so, so one thing is, is to really get clear as to why you're continuing to do the current thing because we behave as if doing the current thing, as in going into work another day, is, is of course a reasonable thing to do. And it's not. It's if, you know, the question to be asking is, is if you didn't have this job and you were going to start today, would you get up and go in?
0: Well, so I think – and I'm 100% in agreement with you on, on the time and – I mean that that's the biggest regret you can have is lack of time with relationships because that's the one thing that you've got. And I think the the challenge that I've experienced and then also uh, witnessed in others is I think well, – so there's this innate, uh, innate psychological makeup of humans where we want consistency and we desire consistency. So we as business owners and as individuals, we build this – persona of who we are what we represent to the outer world and the outer people around us and i think the big challenge and a significant challenge is breaking that and having the guts or the will or whatever you want to call it to recalibrate and and then look up our friends over at the halftime institute which is some individuals that we've interviewed they call that the smolder, uh, smoldering discontent where you just kind of look up and go okay what else but how do you how do you deal with that and you did something very Unique and I think very, uh, very cool with your three-year experiment. So, kind of two parts uh, to that question. One is like, I know what you know, like kind of explaining what you did, but then what do you see that works with other people in order to break that that pattern?
1: Sure. Wow. There's actually a, there's a lot in that question. Um, so, hang on a second. I'm taking a couple notes here so that I can cover it all. All right. I'll tell you what I did. And uh, what is interesting is th- there's a there's a kind of a fascinating. Uh, and tragic postscript to this. uh, All right. So what I did is I I identified these four basic beliefs and I set aside three years worth of living money and embarked on a three-year experiment. And the explicit goal of the three-year experiment was to get outside my comfort zone and to pay myself, essentially to keep paying myself a salary, which was the money I had set aside. And my agenda was essentially to follow my heart and see where I went. Now, I was very clear this was not a three-year experiment of laying on the couch eating bonbons it was a um it was a three-year experiment of allowing myself to do things that i had never thought about doing to investigate things to talk to people like whatever just just to to put myself out in the world and see what happened and it was as you know if you've watched my my talk which um if you go to stever slash l-e-l which stands for living an extraordinary life you can you can listen to the talk um it, was, it turned out to be an amazing three years, and in that three years, I started my podcast, which became one of the top 10, podca- 10 business podcasts in the world. I wrote a book uh, based on the podcast and was published by a mainstream publisher, and thus I got to do a book launch and stuff like that. I discovered musical theater, uh, ended up becoming a Broadway investor, and then co-wrote a musical about personal productivity. Um, and, uh, and performed it and took singing lessons and actually learned enough to be able to perform in a musical. So, like, all kinds of, like, really cool stuff, none of which was on my radar screen. Oh, and I – oh, and co-founded two companies, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, which, which it's very interesting, and, and I want to point this out. Th- those are the things I rarely remember cool because that, yeah. my career has been in business and in startups and so on. So, you know, founding a couple of companies was just kind of more of the same. Mm-hmm. And whereas, whereas I, I would have to say the thing I am most proud of in my entire life was the day that we did the preview showing of my musical, which was a a two person musical, and I played the main character. The other character was off stage; she was a disembodied voice. And I remember standing. My character entered from the back of the audience, and then walked up and got onto stage. She was a a general, the general of a zombie army, and. I remember standing at the back of the room, the music started, and I was about to step down, walk in front of this entire auditorium full of people, this was done on a real theatrical stage at a local university, and start singing. And I was going to have to carry the show alone on stage for an hour. Wow! And I remember thinking, this is either going to be the biggest (laughs) disaster of my entire life or the biggest triumph. And I don't know which it's going to be. And I walked down and got up on stage and started singing. And that moment was, to me, one of the most significant moments of my life because I was so far outside my comfort zone on so many different levels, doing so many things that weren't even a fit for how I conceptualized myself, that that failure, in fact, wouldn't even have been a problem because I would always have the excuse, well... I've never sung before. I've never acted before, and I was singing and acting in a script that I wrote, and I had never written a script before. So I have lots and lots of excuses for why it should be a failure. Um, And it was. It it transformed my sense of self. Getting up and doing that. Um,
0: So what? Because you had this new sense of self. What do you think changed? And how did you? When you walked off stage, what were the new? What was the new dialogue in your head?
1: Well, the new dialogue in my head was I am now an actor, singer, and playwright, in addition to being an entrepreneur and writer and podcaster and all of the other things, that that there's this whole world that is now accessible to me that wasn't before. So when someone says, what do you do? I can choose to just talk about that, and I can choose to show up as somebody who is about the arts and about creativity and about performing, as opposed to just showing up as a business person. Or just showing up as a business person who's an entrepreneur. And by the way, it's kind of interesting. I've been with, uh, I, I've been part of the a, either a founding team or part of the initial team of nine different startups. Actually, eleven now. There was nine a few years ago. Uh, <laughs> of eleven different startups, and I don't really define myself as an entrepreneur. I don't actually enjoy entrepreneurship very much. Uh, I much prefer working for working in an established situation for a regular paycheck. Frankly. Um, I mean, I, I want to have a piece of the upside, but but the the chaos and all that stuff, that doesn't hold any intrinsic allure to me. Uh, it just happens to be that that I'm very good at helping to start things and I'm good at creating systems and and you know, I'm good at a lot of the skills that correspond to the initiation of something. But it's interesting to me because so many people do identify as entrepreneurs. And I will describe myself that way, but I just but in my head, it's not part of my identity. In my head, I'm just doing that for PR purposes because it's a word that people think they know what it means. Um, so that's one of the big things that this experience did is it gave me – it gave. okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out of your question for a second and mm-hmm. give like a little bit of theory and then I'll step back into the question. Um, one of the most powerful things that a human being has is their sense of identity and how you define yourself, like the ways that you would complete the sentence, I am blank. Those are kind of the highest level controls of what you will and won't allow yourself to do. And just by changing, I mean just, it's not easy to change your sense of identity. But if you change your sense of identity, then then it changes lots of stuff. So if you believe, if if your primary identity is I am a business person, when you have free time, you're probably going to seek out business things. When you talk to people and they say, so tell me about yourself, you'll start off by saying, well, I'm a business person. So it's how you will frame yourself to other people. Uh, it is also Um, If someone says, hey, come paint this painting, you'll say, well, I've never painted a painting because I'm a business person. And they'll have to convince you to come paint a painting. Uh, But if you change your sense of identity or you broaden it to include I'm an artist, then someone says, come paint this painting, and you go, well, I've never painted a painting, but I am an artist, so let me give it a shot. Mm -hmm. The sense of identity is really critical in how you think about your relationship to other people, to the economy you're in, et cetera, et cetera. And so you kind of just step in and you step in and into that sense of identity and it determines a lot about what options you have available and what you'll let yourself do. So one of the things about my three-year experiment, so I did this for three years, did all these amazing things and I have a very literal brain and it was a three-year experiment and at the end of the three years, my brain flipped out of that mode right back into <laughs> to the, the non-extraordinary way of living. And it was pretty hellish for a couple of years. And then on, uh, it was June 17th, 2014, about four in the afternoon, I was typing something on the computer and all of a sudden my brain said, experiment back on. <laughs> and I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, like in, literally in an instant, I went, well, I guess this thing I'm working on doesn't matter anymore because I'm back in the experiment mode and I'm back towards not using goals and not using life goals and life plans. I can still use goals and plans to accomplish smaller tasks and projects. But, um, and three days later, I was on the bus to New York city and I sat down and this uh, young college student sat down next to me. We got into a four and a half hour conversation and long story short, we ended up becoming business partners. And this relationship with this young man completely changed my life in many deep and dramatic ways. And uh and it's it's been really quite an amazing three years um and then a couple weeks ago we parted ways it was extremely unexpected and to be perfectly honest it was initiated on his end and i still have no idea what it was about i'm completely mystified um but what that has done is that has once again kind of popped me back into experiment mode of going, okay. So the last experiment brought me him and brought me all this transformational stuff and and a business partnership I would never even have dreamt of having if you had proposed it to me. Um, and now I'm suddenly back there again. So in fact, what I'm doing right now, literally as of like the last, as of since you asked to do this interview, uh, is I've suddenly found myself back in the state of Do I want to continue with the plans that we had and continue going in that direction? Or maybe this is another time for me to stop and take a deep breath and be open to whatever comes next, because it maybe there's a lot out there that, you know, is off my radar screen that needs to be on it now.
0: Well, it's really uh, what you just said is very applicable to that story that you've told um, about. The biggest difference between individuals are the different conversations and the different topics because really that's all – I've I've said a couple of things to a couple of people recently were like we've all got 168 hours each week. It's what do you do with it? And that dovetails right into your point of different people, different conversations. And just putting yourself out there because it's very actionable. I mean, you don't know what's going to come of it, but if if you just open up the lens of what you're looking at the world with, you're going to start stumbling across different um, opportunities.
1: Did you did you um, uh, did you listen to one of the recordings where I talked about my talking about stuff with people? Yeah, uh, or part of it,
0: I believe. Um, if yeah, you're to, I can't remember the person you were talking to it was a billionaire. Oh,
1: oh, it was Ted Turner. Okay, yeah, um, <laughs> kind I, of a I met. Deal. T- yeah, I met Ted Turner at a conference, and we were standing in the hall talking. I'm sure he. I'm, I'm sure that I remember this a lot better than he does, uh, and I remember thinking, "Wow, like his entire or my entire life has led up to this meeting with Ted Turner," and then I also thought, "And his entire life has led up to this meeting with me," and I realized. At this moment, this, the two of us are starting from exactly the same place, the same conversation, at the same time. Why is he going to walk away and be Ted Turner and I'm going to walk away and be Steve a. Robbins? And then I realized it was because he was going to walk into the next room and have a conversation with Bill Clinton about how to uh, disarm our nuclear uh, arsenal that is still on code red or whatever it is. It's never been downgraded since the Soviet Union dissolved. Um, and I was going to go back to my room and suggest that we play a board game. Uh, and I realized the only difference between me and Ted Turner is who we talked to and what we talked about. And I think for most of us, that's really true. That, that the the main things that determine the course of our life are, are our relationships, which in turn are determined by who we're talking to and what we're talking about. And you can't always determine who you're going to talk to. If I had tried to go into the next room to talk to Bill Clinton, I'm guessing the Secret Service would have had other ideas. <laughs> but – I'm free to talk to anyone about America's nuclear arsenal, and I'll bet if I talk to enough people, eventually someone will say, let me introduce you to my uncle who works for blah, 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 and see if there's anything there. So, so you can start by just having the conversations you want to have. The people who you've had other conversations with in the past, most of those will opt out because that's not what they want to talk about or else you'd already be talking about it. Um... And if you are proactive about this and follow the thread of the conversation and the referrals, you may actually end up someplace doing something really different from what you you thought you'd be doing. So this introduces the idea of conversation and people as critical pieces for how you want to live your life. Who do you want to talk to and about what? And start having those conversations. And – and that kind of leads into my theory of goal setting. And this is about life goals. This is, again, this is not necessarily about project goals, but about life goals, which is what we're told to do is set a set a goal, a life goal, and then figure out how we're going to reach it. So my life goal is I want to be a veterinarian. And in order to reach it, I have to go to veterinarian school, and then I have to apprentice myself, and then I have to join a practice, and then I have to, to buy the practice from my partners and whatever. Um, uh, there's a series of steps that one can take. And again, no one ever talks about the goal. What they talk about is the journey. So I ask, why not decide the journey you want to take and then choose any goal that will force you to take that journey? It doesn't matter what the goal is because the goal is not the point. And the journey, to me, I, I I identify four aspects of this. There may be more. This is You know, I have this is this is not the result of 40 years of study. This is a result of me just kind of observing what people seem to orient around is who are the people you want to associate with? What is it that motivates you to get out of bed in the morning? What are the tasks that you like doing and what do you want to learn? And and if I can let me return to my theater example, if what I want to learn is how to sing and the tasks that I enjoy doing are teaching things and the people I like to hang out with are theater people, and the thing that motivates me is uh, doing good for the world, then I could imagine, wow, why don't I... I could set as a goal to be the voice teacher, uh, to be a voice teacher and work with students who want to produce musicals that have a social justice message. Mm -hmm. That could be one thing. Or I could go become... I, I could set as a goal that of being like you know, the vocal, um, what's the word, you know, a, a vocal pathologist somewhere in the theater world to help, to help opera divas who have nodules on their vocal cords or whatever. I mean, there's, there are actually really different things that I could do, all of which would force me to associate with those people to do the activities that I like doing in the communities that I want to do it and that have a motivational purpose for me.
0: I love it. I I I think that was the best definition of how to go forward I've heard so far. I in w- and it's a way that I would not have articulated. I was having this exact conversation with a really good friend of mine who owns some assisted living facilities and just really looking to do like what am I going to do next because he's you know hit the financial nut that he needed to hit and now it's should we buy other businesses should we sell this should we do real estate and it's all kind of the the Charlie Munger Warren Buffett trying to drive the net worth but it, the conversation i had with him was like hey well now you have the freedom to choose the conversation the people you want and it was it, the kind of the, the the way that the conversation took was let's say you love healthcare and you want to change healthcare and you can go down that direction instead of just looking at the rate of return or the value now you can go project yourself in that direction start interacting with the top minds in science and in health and surround yourself with the things that you like to do or if the other direction is education you're going to project yourself that way and you're going to be submersed by those things but the number no longer matters so in that and having the option i mean that's what having a business for is you got options to do that kind of stuff
1: well, in fact, I have a coaching client who sold his business, doesn't have to work again. And what he's doing, in fact, what he – part of the initial initial engagement that I had with him was essentially helping him develop the courage to really step outside his comfort zone. And when we started working together, he wanted to learn how to compose music and stuff. And now he is composing and recording songs and he is, is hop-nobbing with famous musical people and, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And he is becoming a musician. He has a studio in his house and he's doing it and it has been it has been a process of realizing that it doesn't have to be a continuation of what he's done it can be something really different because once you've got the resources for goodness sake you know uh, like understand that <laughs> it, it the incremental value of going from a net worth of five million dollars to six million dollars may be dwarfed by the incremental value of just going ahead and living off of your five million dollars And instead spending that writing a musical theater piece or learning how to fly or climbing K2, which are all things that that I've known people who have done once they have hit whatever their number is and decided, hey, I'm going to I'm not going to stay hostage to the way I've had of thinking. But in order to do that, they need to be willing to to get away from other people because other people have expectations and their expectations will mold you to some degree, Um, get away from other people for a little while and really ask either what are the things I want to do that I've never done or what are the things that are important to me or just what's something that's outside my comfort zone that will help kind of shock me back into adolescent learning mode because I don't need to be career oriented anymore.
0: So if if you were sitting in my office right now and I was one of your clients in that situation and I've... Trying to figure out what what's next. What what's the where do you start? What's the first question you ask someone?
1: Uh, the first well, the first question I would ask is you know what do you enjoy? What makes you happy? You know, but what and, and by the way, I, I I there was a time when I didn't think I'd have to ask this, but it turns out like I said before, there's a lot of people who've never asked that question. Mm-hmm. They've never really stopped to go where do I get my satisfaction or my joy or whatever. And by the way, if the person says money. Uh, i'm not going to believe them because money is always a proxy for something else Mm -hmm. money itself has no intrinsic value it's only valuable in terms of the things you can exchange it for and if you're at the point where you have enough of it that you no longer have to exchange your time for money then you know then, then now we need to move out of the abstraction and get into the concrete stuff um so that's where I would start is really saying, you know, what do you what do you love? And again, I have this sort of four element framework. What do you love to learn? What kinds of people do you want to hang out with? What motivates you to get out of bed in the morning and what kinds of activities do you enjoy doing? And um and I would then encourage them to go have conversations about the things that motivate them with the kinds of people they want to hang out with <laughs> and 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 then to see where that leads essentially. Uh, you know, that's, that's what I'm planning to do in terms of my next, uh, in terms of my next steps is I'm sitting down and I'm saying, what are the things that I care about? You know, and, and by the way, in terms of things like planning for retirement, uh, I happen to be, I happen to be scientifically trained and I just live a couple blocks from MIT. So I am heavily influenced by that. And I happen to believe that there is not going to be a retirement to worry about if we don't put some serious efforts into understanding things like how to protect ourselves against global warming. Having just come out of a, the first winter in Boston that had an entire week of over 70 degree days, you know, and I'm kinda looking at this going, at the rate that the temperature is increasing, 30 years from now is going to be sufficiently different from today that I don't know it makes sense to try to plan for it. At least not in, not. I mean, y- yes, go ahead and try to plan for it, but the, the chances that the world is going to resemble what your plan, That The assumptions that you're going to be making in order to make that plan will still hold in 30 years, I think are highly unlikely. I don't think that our employment patterns are going to hold. I don't think that our resource usages are going to hold. I don't think that the climate is going to hold. So, you know, that doesn't mean give up. But what it does mean is... It's the deferred marshmallow thing you know mm-hmm. don't assume you know don't assume that you can defer those marshmallows for thirty years, so start looking for start looking for today's marshmallows
0: so in your in your journey that you're ch- kind of choosing to start focusing on is that down that way, so you're going to be asking questions and meeting people and pursuing a topic that you like and surrounding yourself with people that are discussing the same things
1: uh exactly and and people who I like because there's multiple kinds of people who might discuss the same things. Right, I you know I, I tend to I tend to like people who are very high level strategic thinkers, uh, but who have a drive towards implementation. I'm I'm one of those people who actually moves pretty smoothly all the way from implementation, of, you know, back up to the fifty thousand foot view. I can go all the way from fifty thousand feet down to ten and back. It's just my brain works that way, and so I like dealing with people who can also either do that transition or who I can work with to connect either the small detailed picture to the large picture or the large picture to the details. So I like being the bridge between those, which means I'm going to go seek out people who who either also can be the bridge or who are at one area and the other and want to do the connecting.
0: I love it. Stever, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I know you and I could probably talk for hours about all these different things. If there's one thing or if there's a, a way for our listeners to get in touch with you, other than Googling you and you being everywhere, um, what are some of the, the main places they can find you?
1: Sure. Well, my podcast, which is a podcast that is about personal productivity and zombies. Uh, the podcast is you can just go to getitdoneguy.com. That will actually take you to my website, my personal website but there's a link there to go to the podcast oh you can also you can just go to itunes.com forward slash get it done guy and that's my podcast which is just about productivity although i do sneak some life design stuff in there here and there uh and then you can find me at com s t e v e r r o b b i n s s-t-e-v-e-r-r-o-b-b-i-n-s.com and if you hunt around there's several hundred articles that i've written on the site but they're pretty buried and most of them are about are about business um and you know a few, few videos of me. And if you want to see a five-minute promo of the musical that I wrote, and this is not starring me, we hired professional musical theater actors to play the part in the promo video. You can go to worklessanddo.more.com and worklessanddo.more.com. And at the top of the page, there is a five-minute preview, and you click it, and you can you can see and listen to two absolutely fantastic New York actors um, uh, performing. Uh, excerpts from three of the songs in the musical each of which is a productivity tip
0: Stever, thanks so much for coming on the show
1: my pleasure, thank you for having me